The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Starting in verse 121. I have done what is just and right. Do not leave me to my oppressors. Give your servant a pledge of good. Let not the insolent oppress me. My eyes long for your salvation and for the fulfillment of your righteous promise. Deal with your servant according to your steadfast love and teach me your statutes. I am your servant. Give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. It is time for the Lord to act, for your law has been broken. Therefore, I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. Therefore, I consider all your precepts to be right. I hate every false way. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Would you pray with me? Father God, we are yours. We recognize that we are not yours because we pursued you. We are not yours because we chased you down. We are not yours because we somehow did something during a relationship with you, Father. We know that we stand here today gathered as your people, a spiritual family, entirely because of you. Because of your planning and your working, your glorious grace. So, Father, as we gather today and open your word together, Father, we recognize that this will be a fruitless exercise, that it will come to nothing if we seek to do it in our own abilities. It is only by your word, the power of your spirit, that there will be change, that we will be molded and shaped and formed and truly blessed as we look that much more like Christ Jesus our Lord. So we ask, Father, for you to do that. I ask personally, Father, that you would guard my mouth, allow me to say nothing which is not true, but to boldly proclaim that which is true. Pray that you would give us all ears to hear. This word would strike first my own heart, but then the congregation, those of us gathered here together that would hear our it would receive in us, find in us ears to hear and hearts of good soil and that um, we would be changed. So Father God, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. Let's call these things in your son's name. Amen. So we return this morning to our exposition of Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. I ask you to go ahead and just stand right back up. Turn to your feet in the reverence to the reading of God's word. As you know by now, we are in Ephesians chapter 1. We will read together verses 3 through 14. This is the inerrant, infallible, sufficient, authoritative word of God, and we must receive it as such. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. 
in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory in him you also when you heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Again, Father, we ask that you would make this book live to us. That you would show us yourself. Show us who you are, Father God, in there. Show us ourself and our sin and how far, how far short we have fallen. Then show us Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, is our only hope. Father God, again, we ask these things in his precious name. Amen. So you will very likely recall that on our last two Lord's Days together, we sought to rightly speak and think and live and worship in light of God's magnificent promise that before the foundation of the world, he had chosen us in Christ Jesus for the express purpose that we would be made holy and blameless before him. Now I pray that you had opportunity this week to meditate on that truth. I pray that this week when the pull of flesh was at its strongest, that when sin and Satan spoke so sweetly to you, when they, when they sought to lure you back into the darkness, I pray that your first impulse was to look to Christ in heaven, was to set your, things on mind, set your mind on things that are above, and to remind yourself that I am there with my Savior. That even now, in Christ Jesus, I am seated in heavenly places. And that as God sees me in Christ, I am already now holy and spotless and pure. And therefore, he is 100% for me. And that today, that in this life, even as I groan for that final redemption, even as my spirit cries out longing for the day when Christ Jesus will come and take me home once and for all, that even now, day by day, I am being molded into his own glorious image. Pray that you remember that you have been given by God from the Father to the Son as a precious gift, that the Son purchased you with his own life, that you have been set free from slavery, that you have been cleansed and purified, perfected once and for all time. Pray that you recognize it by his Spirit and through his word, he is changing you into something that is splendid and glorious and beautiful and lovely, that he has not given up, that he will not give up, that he will not fall short. And therefore, that you will strive, that you will work, that you will pursue, that you will charge hard in complete dependence upon the Holy Spirit while resting upon his word through prayer and study and communion with the saints, that you will trust God even as you labor and you press hard towards real and personal holiness. I pray to cry of your heart this week whenever you felt that pull, whenever the darkness seemed like maybe it was a little bit too inviting, whenever Satan's words seemed a little bit too true in that moment. I pray that the cry of your heart was what I want more than anything, what I want more than these passing pleasures, what I want more than a fleeting moment of earthly delight, what I want more than anything in all the world is to please my Lord and my King. But then I pray on those times when you stumbled. I pray when your desire for earthly pleasures won, whenever your desire for the things of this world was a little bit greater than your desire to walk in obedience to Christ Jesus. On those times when you gave in and you sinned, I pray more than anything that you did not listen to the accusations of the enemy. I pray that you did not heed his filthy lies. And I wonder what he said to you in those moments. Did he seek to convince you that you must surely be lost? Did he try and convince you that there's no way Jesus could possibly love you now? Did instead that serpent devote himself to attacking the character of God? Did his twisted tongue try to convince you that God must surely not be good, otherwise the world wouldn't be like it is? Did he try and convince you that God and his law are too restrictive, too harsh, too demanding to possibly care anything about? Perhaps he hinted to you that your, your sin, that has no real consequences. Look, you haven't died. He's a liar. In fact, nobody even knows what you've done. Surely it'll never be brought out into the light. There's no consequence. All is well. All is well. Get comfortable here. But I pray that you recognize these for exactly what they are. Filthy, damnable lies. I pray that you abhorred them. Abhorred even the thought of them. And I pray that you remembered instead the promises of God. That you therefore repented. 
that you ran to God, that you trusted in him for mercy and grace and strength. Pray that you trusted in Christ. You rested in what he's accomplished at the cross. You look to the free grace that he purchased you there, remembering that it is all yours, completely and totally yours, and that you cannot lose it because you didn't earn it. As a matter of fact, you didn't even choose it. He chose you. And so then I pray. I prayed for you, precious saints. I pray that you found rest. I pray that as you fled to Christ Jesus, that in him you found rest for your mind, that you found rest for your heart, that you found rest for your souls in Christ Jesus, trusting in his promises and nothing else. Now, when we were last together, I mentioned very briefly that the last two words of verse four, those words in love, I told you that we were gonna spend some time today trying to figure out where those words actually belonged. Now, if I said this to you at a time when you were looking down in your own copy of God's word, you probably wondered what in the world I was talking about. Because if you look in the NASB, the NIV, the ESV, basically any modern English translation of the Bible, you will find that the words in love are the beginning of a new sentence. It says there, in love, he predestined us. But I want you to notice something. Where does verse five begin? If you look in your Bible, you'll see that, well, well, typically, what you would expect to find is that a new verse, it's going to begin at the beginning of a new sentence, or at very least, at the beginning of a new thought or proposition. But if you look, what you'll see is that little bitty number five, it's inserted there after just two words, in love. Now, one of the Real imperatives about good Bible study is to think like a detective, to be on the lookout, to be inquisitive, to ask questions, to look for patterns and repetition, look, look for anything that seems strange or stands out, looks out of place to your eyes. So if you're studying this word on your own, if you're reading the scripture on your own, and you took note of the fact that there's a, a new verse that begins after just two words, two words into the middle of a sentence, it would be right and good to ask yourself, Why? So as you know, when Paul sat down to write this letter, or whenever he spoke these words and his scribe wrote these letters for him, he obviously did not do so using chapter and verse. Now I know this is an obvious statement to you, but it's a helpful reminder that Paul was called by God. He had been chosen by God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus from before he was even born. That not only has he been sent out to proclaim the gospel message to the world, but he's been used of God inspired by the Spirit of God to record for us the words of the Son of God, Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, this word is perfect, absolutely inerrant, without flaw, as I said earlier, authoritative, sufficient, perfect in every way. Now, I cannot assume any longer that just because someone calls himself Christian that they understand or really even believe this. So allow me to say it again. This word is perfect, without error, if there's a problem, the problem's with my thoughts, not with this word. But this original word as it was given to us, it did not have these little numbers in there. The autograph as it is called. Paul's original letter as it was written in Greek, it didn't have chapter and verse divisions. Those were added many years later by a Frenchman called Robert Stephanus. In 1551, he built upon the work of men who had come centuries earlier, and he officially inserted what we have here in our New Testament. Now, these markers, they are good and they are helpful. They allow us to speak on common terms about what text we're talking about. Now, Jesus Christ referred to Scripture, and he didn't have to do this, so it's not altogether necessary, but it's good and helpful for me to be able to tell you we're looking today at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. But they do present to us some potential for problems. Number one, they can tempt us to take Scripture out of context just little bite-sized chunks, little bumper sticker theology way out of the original meaning, original context. These divisions, they, um, they can also send the unintended signal that we're meant to just receive this text in verses and it's not a completed whole, that it's not a whole letter that's meant to be sat down and read in one sitting even. But again, these numbers are helpful, but we must remember they were not part of Paul's original writing. Beyond this, most of the manuscripts that we have, most of the manuscripts, the early copies of this word that men gather together in order to present to us the Greek New Testaments that we have available to us today. Most of those manuscripts, they did not contain much, if any, punctuation at all. Are you following me? So not only did you not have chapter and verse, but most of the manuscripts, the copies that we have of the original letter from Paul, they don't even have punctuation in them. In fact, they don't even have spacing between the words. It's just one incredibly long sentence or a string of, of letters 
put together. Now, this would not be as challenging as you would first think. I could put up for you an English sentence with no punctuation, with no spacing, and with not much work, you would be able to understand what it is that I meant to say. But there would be times when it allowed you to make an educa- when it required of you to make an educated guess. When you had to determine, okay, where did Josh mean to break off this particular sentence and start something new? Where does this thought end and a new thought begins? Well, it seems to me as though Ephesians 1, the break between verse 4 and 5, is one of those instances where you had just a bunch of capital letters all strung together, and men had to sit down and determine, where did Paul end one thought and begin another? So if you were to pick up any modern copy of uh, a Greek translation, of, or a, a Greek copy of the New Testament, the one that sits on my desk, what you will find is that there is no period before the words in love. In fact, there's no period at all. There's a comma. And that comma actually comes after the words in love. We would read it like this. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy before him in love, comma. Now you see how that changes what we're looking at here. So apparently in the minds of the men that edited my edition of the Greek New Testament, the phrase in love belongs with everything that we've been talking about in all these months prior and not what we're about to talk about in the weeks to come. Apparently Robert Stephanus, this man who took and added these little numbers so that we could refer to particular chapters and verses, apparently he agreed with them. That's why he has divided it up as he is. That's why he began verse 5 after the words in love. He thought that was the completion of a thought in the beginning of a new one. Are you tracking with me? So we come to the 21st century, the 20th century, and the men that produced for us are contemporary versions, contemporary English versions of the Bible. They thought that in love pointed to what followed. They disagreed. They therefore removed the comma and they added a period before the words in love as you see in your Bible today. So the question is, who's right? We cannot automatically assume that newer automatically means correct. It isn't as though the men at Crossway somehow found Paul's original letter or they they had a line to Paul's publicist and they said, hey, we solved this once and for all. We know exactly what the issue is here. And then as I read through some commentaries and I listened to sermons, what I found is that men, even contemporary men, modern men, men who have the same, same copies of God's word that you do, they were very much divided on this issue. So let us consider together a couple of things. Really what the issue is, it's at play. If what we have here in our English Standard Version is correct, if what we have here in, in love belongs to what comes next, then what Paul is telling us is that God's predestining, predestining us for adoption was carried out in love. In love, God predestined us. Now that is, without a doubt, a true statement. God's works are never passionless or arbitrary. This whole section that we're reading here is talking about God's redeeming love, his incomparable love, his working through grace for the salvation of his people. Absolutely, it's an outpouring of his love. As Paul will record for us in Ephesians 2.5 with regards to regeneration, it is because of the great love with which God has loved us. So God most certainly has predestined us in love. But if the ESV guys are wrong, the men that came before them are right, and in love points to what came before, that brings us two more questions. We've then got to ask, okay, if in love belongs to everything that's found in verse 4, what portion of verse 4 is it talking about? Is he talking about God's choosing of us? Is that what this means? Is Paul saying that in love, God chose us in Christ? Again, I say that's certainly a true statement. God's spiritual blessings, they are always grounded in his eternal and redeeming love for his people. In the words of Paul in Colossians 3.12, we are God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. So yes, just as God has predestined us in love, he has chosen us in love. But just grammatically, the sheer distance between chosen and in love makes it seem very unlikely that that's what Paul has in mind here. That probably wasn't his original intent when he talked about this in love. So then that would leave for us if in love points to what happens in verse 4, that leaves us then with just what happened immediately preceding that, namely our being holy and blameless before God. He's talking about our love and not God's. That we would be holy and blameless before in love means we are holy and blameless in love before God. Now there's great difficulty with that because this whole section that we read here, All of verse 3 through 14, it's all about God. God is the focus. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. His work in planning 
in accomplishing and applying his redemption to his people. And so surely what Paul most strongly desires is for us to see the unmerited, incomparable love and mercy and grace of God and not keep our eyes fixed on ourselves. So then we might rightly ask ourselves, would he really then at the end of this first sentence in this long string, would he really then immediately take our eyes off of the love of God and put it on to the love of man? Well, I think yes. I believe that's what he's done. I believe that Paul is reminding us that not only has redemption accomplished this thing which changes God's disposition towards us, not only has God bestowed his love upon rebel sinners, but that the hearts of rebel sinners have been changed towards God. He has turned us towards him. And I certainly believe that the love of God came first. I haven't lost sight of that. It's the love of God that came first. It's a love of God that's of the utmost importance. God's love is the preeminent love. And so we're in no way doing damage to our theology. We're in no way doing violence to the text. If we're to stand at this point right here and say, I choose to believe that in love points both to God's choosing of us and his predestining us. That's what I hinted to last week, wasn't it? I said exactly that. I've found men that say exactly that, that this in love, it just covers the whole of what, God is ta- what Paul is talking about here in this portion of his letter. But I think that technically, grammatically, what Paul first had in mind whenever he wrote this particular portion of God's promise was that God chose us in Christ so that we would be holy and blameless in love before God. So I have a quandary at this point. Do I just tell you what I believe or do I show it to you? Because here's the problem. The room has gone dead. I've just given you some super unspiritual sounding, super dry stuff to chew on. You feel like you're in a lecture. You feel like you're in a schoolroom right now. And so I I understand that there's this, there's, there's this, this weightiness, this, this headiness that comes with talking like this. And frankly, it's not, it's not always great for me to show you how I land everywhere that I land. And The reality is that typically by the time the stuff leaves my brain and hits my mouth and comes out to your ears, it probably doesn't make much sense anyway. And the other issue is that it's not really going to change your theology. This is not a a primary issue. This is not going to change the way that you think about God. It's not going to change your salvation in any way. But I need to confess to you that I'm very, very, very concerned about the trend in contemporary churches where pastors just get up and say stuff and they never tell you how they got there. And just because the dude stands behind a pulpit, you assume that it's true. Even worse than this, they'll come to difficult things like this, and this isn't terribly difficult. Again, this isn't going to set the world on fire, whether I'm right or whether I'm wrong. But the problem is, anytime they come to something difficult, they simply skim over to pretend like it's not there. And so my hope is, is as you see me wrestle through this, and as I draw your attention to it, if nothing else, it will be a healthy reminder that we are a people who are devoted to knowing what God actually meant by what he actually said. So if the cost of that is 13 minutes of hermeneutics, If the cost of that is you watching me flail around like a fish out of water, I believe that it's worth it. So, this point that I'm fixing to show you, it was first brought to my attention by a man called A.T. Lincoln in his commentary on the book of Ephesians, but it's held by a lot of men. In short, this section of Ephesians chapter 1, Paul always seems to place a qualifying, qualifying phrase, like a description of how something has happened after he tells us the thing that has happened. Let me show you what I mean. Look in your Bibles here. In verse 3, Paul says that God has blessed us. That's the action. That's the thing that happened. God blessed us. In what way does he say that God has blessed us? In Christ with every spiritual blessing. You see this? In verse 4, he says that God chose us. That's the thing that has happened. That's the action. God has chosen us. In what way has he chosen us? In Christ before the foundation of the world. Verse 5, God predestined us. In what way did he predestined us? To adoption as sons through Christ. Verse 6, God has blessed us with his glorious grace. In what way? In the beloved. Verse 7, we have redemption. How? Through his blood. Verse 8, God lavished the riches of his grace upon us in all wisdom and insight. Verse 9, God made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure. Verse 10, God's plan is to unite all things in Christ. Verse 11, we have been predestined according to his purpose. Do you sense the flow? Do do you feel the cadence of this? This This is the pattern that Paul seems to be laying out here. There's a verb or a participle just telling us the action, the thing that has happened, and then immediately there's some qualifying phrase, the way in which this thing has been done. And so with the possible exception of verse seven, you'll see verse seven there begins with, in him. With the possible exception of verse seven, it would seem inconsistent for Paul to take this modifying phrase, in love, and start at the beginning of some new thought. 
Seems to me that it's more in keeping with this pattern for in love to point backwards to the thing that has already happened. We are holy and blameless before God in love rather than in love God has predestined us. Do you see? If you don't, zoop, those 13 minutes just never happened. Instead, I want you to focus on what this means for us. Focus on the fallout from this. What does this amount to? If my interpretation is correct, if the love that God is talking about here is the love of saints towards God and not necessarily the love of God towards his saints, then I believe that what he's reminding us here is that God's ultimate purpose in choosing us is not to create a bunch of robots or puppets or automatons. That God desires, that God will guarantee that he has your heart. That the end result of this whole thing, the end result of his choosing, the terminus, the point in which it all ends up, is God's people standing before God, holy and blameless and in love. We're reminded this is not a heartless exercise. That God is just not looking for a bunch, as I say, of puppets or robots running around. Think about what Jesus' charge was to the Pharisees. You remember that the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they had come to Jesus and they had, they had come with an accusation against him and his disciples. They wanted to know, why do you and your followers not wash your hands the way that the tradition of the elders requires? In short, they were accusing Jesus and his disciples of being unholy. But what do we find in Mark chapter 6, excuse me, chapter 7, verse 6? Jesus says to them, you hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. We were reminded in Ephesians, just as we were reminded when we worked through that gospel together, we were reminded that man-made holiness, what we might, what we might rightly call self-righteousness, that man simply keeping external ordinances and commandments, that that is not at all what God has commanded, it is not at all what he desires, it is not at all what is pleasing to him. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. This is the first and the greatest commandment. The second, which is like it, is that you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. The whole of the law, it hangs upon this. A life that is truly pleasing to God, it looks like, and again I say it rests upon this. You don't know the heart of what it means to be a holy person? The heart of what it means to walk in obedience to God? What it looks like to be one determined to please God with our life. It's going to be a life lived in obedience, yes, but heart-filled, sold-out, loving obedience. Completely un unreserved love for God that flows over into love for each other. You cannot love God and not love men. You cannot claim to love the invisible God while not loving men that are standing right before you with real needs. And so it's not a heart that's any longer consumed with love for self. It's not a heart that is in love with the passing pleasures of this world. It's not even a heart that just begrudgingly gives to God obedience. It is the whole of man fully and completely given over to God. And then we see in this how absolutely impossible this thing called holiness is in and, over, in and of our own power. You see why it requires of God. If he's going to make us holy, if the promise is that you will be holy and blameless, and if being holy and blameless means not just walking in obedience, not just begrudgingly doing what God has told you to do, but doing it joyfully, doing it as an act of love, doing it as a wholehearted thing towards God, you immediately recognize this thing is impossible unless God does something supernatural within me. You following me? Because man cannot change his own heart. And the reality is that true holiness, it involves the heart. I can muster some semblance of obedience if I live careful enough. That's the way we tend to view holiness. We tend to view holiness as just don't step in the mud. Just walk out how you, uh, watch out how you live. It's just a big list of things that you're not supposed to do. Well, the reality is that most of us have enough self-discipline that we can walk carefully enough that for the most part, we could, if we desired, make it through this life with some sense of external blamelessness. But what about the heart? I can't change my heart, and that's the point. That's exactly the point. That you are absolutely helpless to change your heart, and therefore what God is calling us to do here, this thing that he is saying that he has done, it is absolutely impossible with man. Therefore, who can be saved? With man, it is impossible. But with God, nothing is impossible. It's a radical transformation in the way we understand what it means to be holy. And it's an understanding of how God can tell us that we're to delight in holiness. You understand? Because he desires not just for your obedience to come along, not just for the externals to happen, but for your heart to love him. And when you do the things that you love, you delight. Listen, you people bought me a, a telescope this week. 
I delight in that telescope. Let me tell you how much I delight in that telescope. I had to leave it sitting in a box sitting on my, on my, my office floor last night because I knew if I open this, I will do no work. So I did my work. I got done with my work about 9 o'clock last night. Well, I'm going to at least put it together. I put this thing together. I want to go outside and I want to look, right? I don't want to go look at the moon. I want to look at the stars. I'm going to go look at something. But I knew the reality was if I go out there, y'all will come back on Sunday morning and I'll be sleeping in the lawn because I've spent all night staring at the stars. No one has to convince me. No one has to twist my arm. No one has to force me because I delight in the stars. I love to stand in awe of God's handiwork. God has promised he'll cause you to delight in him and his law and obedience and true holiness just like that. You don't have to be a nerd that's into the stars. Just insert your own thing, whatever that is. The reality is he's called us to do something that's impossible. And the reality is that sin and unholiness, it springs forth from the heart that's in rebellion to God. A heart that's filled with all manner of evil and selfish desires. And again, I've tried to make abundantly clear to you because the part where most people's theology goes off the rails, when we start talking about God's choosing and God's predestining, the part where men get really uncomfortable is where they fail to remember that you will always do what you most strongly desire. If you desire Christ, you will come to Christ. If you don't desire Christ, you will never come to Christ. And we're reminded that it's never just been about the things out here. It's always been about the internals. It's always been about the heart. It's always been about the desires. The reason we stand before God culpable for every decision that we've made is because those decisions were made from the heart. Because in that moment, we did what we most strongly desired. And therefore, the question is one of affections. The question is one of desires. The question is one of the heart. And so when Jesus Christ shows up and he calls us to love him and to hate the world, we immediately realize you're telling us, in essence, that we're to love something that we once hated and to hate the thing that we once loved. We can't do it. It's an impossible ask to not only obey God, to not only live a life separated from the, from the grotesque and the disturbing things of this world. Again, listen, I know plenty of people who turn up their noses at the evil in this world. There are plenty of people that are on our side of the political aisle that see the grotesque ways that this world is talking about gender and sex and abortion and all manner of things, but they don't do it with a sense of love for God. Therefore, it is not holiness. It's just morality. Morality and holiness are not the same thing. And what he's called you to is holiness. And you cannot affect holiness. You cannot cause holiness. You cannot generate holiness. Morality, maybe. So God's called us to do this thing and to do it in love with our whole heart. And you've seen how many men have made an absolute wreck of their lives. You've seen how many men have made an absolute wreck of their ministries by trying to do this, by trying to please God and live lives that look holy while their hearts are far from him. Again, they try to be outwardly holy, and men just have different makeup, don't they? There are some children, you know it in your own home. You've got more than one child in your home. You know you've got the obedient child, and you've got the child that makes you want to put your head through a wall. You've got that child that you just say to do something, it's the rule, and therefore I'm going to do it. And so we've seen men that live lives like this, but eventually it's going to show up in the wash. Eventually it's going to come up. Eventually we're going to recognize that all they were doing was walking in morality, never in holiness, that their heart never belonged to God, that they were never in love with God, that they never doing this in a sense of I want to be holy and blameless before God in love. They had never fallen down on their knees and cried out to God in this way, and therefore it always shows up in the wash. What is done in darkness will be brought to light because even their best acts of morality are filthy rags before God. And so... Our lives of holiness is not just about the externals, and it's, it's about a life of love, and it's, it's not, we're not just looking to eternity. Remember, there's, there's two aspects to this, right? He's talking about the end of this thing is that we will be perfectly holy and blameless before God in love, talking about the fact that in Christ Jesus, we already stand perfected in the heavenly places before God, but that even now, he is molding us into that image. Even now, we are becoming what we already are in Christ Jesus, men who love God, and therefore, we love each other. This is one of the ways that we know that we are his. This becomes a test. Isn't that what St. John said in his first epistle? That it's a test. It's, it's one of the evidences. It's one of the ways that you can know that you are truly his. It's a, light, it's a life which delights in the law of God. Again, you can't manufacture this. 
You've seen men that try to fake that they like things that they don't like. Or you fed your children something, right? Mom cooked some dinner all day and you've told your kids, you better tell her that it's good. And so the kid eats it and he's just, mmm. I've seen men swallow the law of God like this. They come into worship like this. They go to Bible study like this. They're having to hold their nose and swallow hard. And yet, those who are his, there will be a certain delight, a love for even the law of God. We love God, and therefore we love what pleases God. We love God, and therefore we love to reflect God to all of his creation. And this love is evidence that we are his. It's evidence that he's given us a new heart, that he's changed his desire, that changed our desires, that he's changed our affections. So the question for us this morning is, Christian, do you love holiness, or do you see it as a burden? Do you find true joy and happiness in the promise that you are going to, day after day after day, look more like Christ? I go back and ask you what I said, I, I don't know if it was a week or two weeks ago, that do you see the promise that you will be made holy? Do you, do you see this as a threat, or do you see it as a glorious gift from God? Now, if the answer is, I can't say honestly that I do find it as a gift. If you sit there today and you say, look, I don't find that I love the law of God. I don't find that I love holiness. I don't find this delight that I seem to see in the 119th Psalm for God's righteous judgment. I don't find any of these things. Don't sit there and feel badly about it. Don't get twisted into knots and try to muster up love because you can't do it. That's the point in all this. You can't do it. So I'm not telling you, hey, now go do the thing that you can't do because you still can't do it. And so the answer isn't to white knuckle it. The answer isn't to bear down. Think about the words of the prophet Jeremiah. Can an Ethiopian change the color of his skin? Can a leopard change his spots? Neither can you cause yourself to love God. So the answer is not in more effort. The answer isn't sitting there and feeling guilty about who you are. Again, I ask you to remember the picture of the little girl that I painted for you last week of someone who is trying to make themselves holy. We talked about a little girl that goes into her mother's um, makeup cabinet. She thinks that she's making herself beautiful, but the reality is she comes out looking like a clown. Men who try in their own efforts to muster up holiness, men who try in their own efforts to cause themselves to delight in God, you'll end up looking like a clown. So the answer is not working harder. The answer is crying out to God. It's as simple as that. It's asking. Now you must see this. This is the most important thing I will say to you this morning. This is maybe the most important thing that I will ever say to you for as long as God sees fit to allow me to be your pastor. It is this. I will continue to beat this drum because I know that I know so many people just can't hear it yet. I know so many people just can't see it yet. And so I trust that if I continue to put it out there before you, that each day there'll be one more light bulb going off. That each day by the work of the Spirit, one more person would say, now I see what you're talking about. Because until you do, you will find no joy, you will find no hope in anything that I say from this pulpit. Because I'm consistently calling you to do things that are impossible. Is there anything more frustrating than that? I'm telling you that the only way to heaven is through the impossible. I'm telling you the only way to be holy and to be, live a life that's pleasing to God is impossible. I'm telling you the only way that you can be a true child of God is impossible. Unless you recognize the joy and the impossible, unless you recognize the beauty and the fact that God has called you to do the impossible that he himself will then do, you will never find hope in what I have to say to you. You will find nothing but frustration. You will feel nothing but condemnation because I'm telling you about things that you can't do. But you must recognize that what I'm presenting to you here is a promise from God to his saints. If you are his, if you've been joined to Christ Jesus through true repentant faith, even if that faith feels faint and tiny, even if you feel like that faith is holding on by a thread, you must remember this, that the promises of God rest in the strength of God, not you. The promises of God rest in the strength of God, not the strength of your faith. The promises of God rest in the strength of God and the faithfulness of God, not in whether or not you feel saved at any one moment. Because faith can be high or faith can be low. Faith can be big or faith can be strong. Assurance can wax, insurance can wane. You will have good days and you will have bad days. Your emotions will lie. Your mind will lie. Your heart will lie. Everything about this world will lie to you. So the question isn't even whether or not you feel saved. The question is, do you trust in the God who is faithful? Do you trust that God is powerful enough and faithful enough to do what he has promised? If so, you are among the faithful in Christ Jesus, then I've got a promise to you from him. You need to hear these words as what they are. The sovereign God of the universe, the one who breathes the stars, the one who ordered the cosmos, the one who raises dead men to life. He has said, I chose you, you are mine. 
I bought you at the most exorbitant cost you could ever imagine, the infinitely worthy blood of my son, Jesus Christ. And because I have chosen you and because I have purchased you, you will become holy and blameless before me in love. I will make this happen. It is guaranteed because it has been written before the foundation of the world. So if you stand here today and you do not find that your heart is close to God, then you simply bring this prayer before him. You don't bear down harder. You don't squeeze tighter and you don't give up. You become like the impetuous neighbor. You become like the widow that was consistently coming before the judge. You ask and you ask and you ask. You plead the promises of God over and over and over again. God, you have promised that you would make me holy and blameless. You have guaranteed by your name. You have committed that you will give me a new heart that delights in you. Please, God, help me to love you more. Please, God, cause me to love your law. Please, God, help me to desire holiness. Please, God, help me to delight in your word. I am asking you, Holy Father, I am pleading with you today to give me the thing that you have already promised that you would give me. Do you see it? This is what it means to pray in accordance with the will of God. This is the will of God. He has said it in his word. So many men, they twist up the promises. Isn't it funny? It's the men who stand on the promises of God, the name it and claim it crowd. They always stand on stuff that God hasn't promised and completely gloss over the things that he has. He's made real promises that you can cling fast to, that you can plead before him time after time after time, coming back before him and saying, God, you promised. Not because he's begrudgingly holding it back. Not because he's saying, well, wait till next payday when I have the resources. He's saying, I desire for you to come to me and ask me for the thing that I promised that I will give to you. The thing that I purchased for you, the thing that I wrote in my book before the foundation of the world, I desire that in communion you come to me, you fall on your face, and you beg me for the thing that I delight to give you. And what I delight to give you is a deeper love for me. Do you pray like this? I don't go to Amanda and look at her and go, I, I don't love you. Help me love you. That would be somewhat off-putting. But the God of the universe delights when you come to him like this because the reality is that no one loves him as they should. And even when our love for him feels almost non-existent, he sings over us, he exults over us. There is great joy in heaven when his saints come before him and say, God, what I need and what I want is to delight in you. I want to love you more, change my heart more. That is a prayer that he will answer. And then by the powerful working of the Holy Spirit within you, you give yourself more day after day after day to his word because he has said that it is through his word that he is, he is sanctifying you. You come back to this word and you throw yourself before it. And again, as I said in my introduction, if there is a problem, the problem is with my thinking, not with this word. And so I ask him, God, would you change my thinking? Would you change my mind to line it up with what, who you have said that you are? And then as he molds you and he shapes you and he changes you, not just in your life, but your heart and your desires and your affections, you begin to recognize that he is doing the impossible. In the words of Paul in Philippians 2.13, he has promised that he will work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasures. I cannot stress this enough, dear friends. It is about the desires. God will change your desires. We skip over this. We talk about the working of God through us to carry out his good will to carry out the things which he has planned before us to do. We forget the fact that he will also cause you to delight in it. Do you understand? Because I look around and I look at my own life and how much of my Christian life is spent with something that looks nothing like joy, nothing like delight. There's moments, look, there's moments. There's moments in worship when my heart just, it just sings and I, and I feel like I'm floating around the room. And there's, there's moments when the love of the saints, the love of my brethren comes upon me and I feel loved and I feel encouraged. And yeah, then I delight in what it means to be a child of God. But sometimes when I'm walking through suffering, when I'm walking through pain, when I'm walking through hard things, I find no essence of delight. I find no sense of joy. I find no heart that loves God. And I never in that moment do I say, time out. God, give me this. I'm not asking you to remove me from the situation. I'm not asking you to change my circumstances. I'm asking you to cause me to love you, to delight in you, to find joy in you right now. I'm asking you to work in me, to will what pleases you. Are you with me? I think this transforms our life more than anything else. Is it wrong to ask for daily bread? No, he said to do it. Is it wrong to pray for a loved one that's sick? No, absolutely, that's right and that's good. 
But perhaps we've got this whole thing on its head and that we spend all of our time praying for the stuff that we need and very little time praying that God would change our heart. Saying, God, if this is where you have me, then I trust that you have me here for my good and for your glory. And so rather than asking you to take me out of this to do something that's not for my good and not for your glory, I'm gonna ask you to press hard through this, that you carry me through this, but would you cause me to have joy in it? How would your life be changed? You could be punched in the mouth and smile. Not because you're a sadist, not because you're crazy, not because you love suffering. Because the God of the universe has just transformed your heart. So I promise you, based on the authority of God's word, that if you would just let go, that's what this is all about. It's about letting go. Quit thinking this thing rests on you. Nobody would ever say it, right? Nobody would ever say, look, this whole thing is up to me. If I'm gonna get to heaven, if I'm gonna be holy, if I'm gonna love God, it all rests on me and my working. But the reality is we all live like that. Oftentimes we pray like that. We're holding on so tight to this thing that we think we've captured, this thing that we think we must do. I was, Carrie and I were sitting at, uh, sitting at lunch one day this week and he, he was talking about baseball and I was, I was thinking about golf as he was talking about this. Any of you that have ever golfed, you know that probably the worst thing you can do in golf is to grip the club too tightly. But the problem is you hit a couple of bad shots and you start thinking, well, I gotta control this thing more and you start gripping it real tight and that's the sentence of death. But how many Christians, they come to this and they grip down so tightly because they think it's up to them. They've hit a couple of wayward shots and they think, well, the answer must surely be I've got to grip down more. Dear friends, I'm telling you, you open your hands wide because it was never up to you. You stand before God and you let loose. You say, God, you have promised and therefore I trust you and all of this I hold with open hands. I stand before you like this. I'm not gripping down. I'm not holding tighter. I'm not doing anything. I'm letting go. That that's the call in this. That yes, it will be hard. Yes, it will feel like war and labor and striving because it is. But it's a war with the flesh. It's a war with sin. It's a war with Satan. It's a war with the fact that you are being reformed and reformation hurts. But remaining deformed isn't an option. And so what you'll find, I promise you, dear brothers, I promise you that as you walk this life, as you seek to live this, what you'll find more and more each day is that the fight isn't a fight to hold on to things. It's a fight to convince yourself to let go. It's a fight to quit gripping so hard. It's a fight to quit wishing that you were in control. So the question comes down to, do you trust it? Do you trust that God has planned all of this? God the Father planned this before the foundation of the world that was accomplished by his son at the appointed time, that it is even now being applied to your life by the work of the Holy Spirit. Because God has said it, because God has chosen it, because God has guaranteed it, because God has signed his name to it, it will happen, and therefore there's no need of anxiety whatsoever. I can stand there with open hands before him and say, Father, I trust you. And all of this, this seems to me to be the promise of God given to us here through the Apostle Paul in the fourth verse of Ephesians chapter 1. It also seems to be his prayer. It is my prayer for you, as Paul records it in Philippians 1 verse 9, that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. All right, now I think we're ready to move to verse five. And we'll only be able to skim, just touch it. I, I made a commitment to myself, I would not go over this morning and we will not. Um, we'll be able to touch just briefly on where I think Paul's taking us here in verse five. We'll be able to, be able to set the stage. So verse five goes like this. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Now I think that we established last week that this he here is God the Father. That everything that we seem to be reading here in verse 3 through 6 is talking about the planning and the purposing and the, the will of God the Father. So after saying that God has chosen us, Paul is now saying that God the Father has predestined us. What's the difference? What's the difference between choosing and predestining? What's the difference between election and predestination? Well, in typical common usage of the words, nothing. Whenever somebody talks about God's election or they make reference to predestination, our minds immediately go to the same thing. It's an issue of salvation. God's choosing, God's selecting, God's electing, God's planning for the salvation of certain men. 
So more often than not, we use these terms interchangeably. And I don't just mean we as in common people. I mean pastors and theologians. More often than not, we use these terms almost interchangeably. But they're not identical. When we think about election, what we're talking about is God's choosing of certain individual people out of a greater whole. Out of a larger group, out of the whole mass of humanity, election points us towards God's choosing of certain individual people. But you will notice that it was necessary for Paul to include a qualifying phrase there. It was necessary for him to make clear that this choosing happened before the foundation of the world. Now, I've gone through great lengths to make clear to you that because this election happened in eternity past, happened before we existed anywhere other than the mind and the will and the purposes of God, that this election is unconditional. It's not based on anything that we had, do, had done or based on anything that we would do or any inequality within us. It was all according to God's good pleasure. But this would not be clear simply if we had used the word chosen or election. If Paul had simply said, God chose you, none of what I just said would have been clear. Do you understand? It required, the, it required the, the qualifying phrase that came before, after it, before the foundation of the world. The word choosing simply indicates God has chosen. Just as you and I might choose something. We go to the store, we look at all the cereal, and we choose for ourselves this cereal over that cereal. It was the addition of the words before the foundation of the world that made clear that his, and other texts, obviously, the whole of Scripture, that made clear to us that God's election is unconditional. You tracking with me? But the word predestination, it has within it the indication of timing. It has the word there, pre. You see it? Pre is the prefix. Now it's pro, it's P-R-O in the Greek, but it simply means before or prior to. Now we know that before or prior to, when we're talking about the God of the universe, we know that he's talking about a time before there was time or space or matter or a world or people. He's talking about a time when there was nothing but God. Now the full word here is proorizo. A rizzo means something that's appointed or determined or destined. So we put these two things together and we recognize that predestined means exactly what it looks like. It means that something has been determined beforehand. Now specifically, it says that this is a thing that's been determined beforehand by God. So when we're talking about the God of the universe, before, prior, pre, we know not only is he talking about before there was a world or time or space or matter or humans, we know that the scope of this thing is infinite. That the scope of things that God determines is literally everything. We should immediately recognize just the broad scope of what he's talking about here. It's an all-encompassing matter. This is God that we're talking about. He is the God about whom it is said that he works all things according to the counsel of his will. All things. Big things, small things, good things, evil things, scary things, happy things. All things according to the counsel of his will. So this God of the universe, he has determined all things, all things happened exactly as God has determined, and God has determined these things before there was a world in eternity past. Therefore, we can rightly say that it is, it is true to say that God has predestined literally everything that happens. This word predestined, it talks about literally every single thing that comes to pass. Think about the church's prayer, the early church as they came together and pray in Acts chapter 4. They were talking about God's providence in the crucifixion of his son. Acts 4.27, they cried out to God, for truly in this city were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place. God had predestined these free will actions of Herod and Pilate and Judas and the Gentiles and the Jews. That's basically everybody in case you weren't keeping count. Saying that God has predestined all of these things, the actions of these men, the whole of creation moving towards this appointed end, exactly as God's hand and God's plan had predestined, it would arrive at this point right here, the very destination which God had determined beforehand. That's what predestined means. Therefore, predestined does not just talk about men's salvation, but that's what's most important to us. Listen, you're very comfortable. Every, I've never met a Christian that wasn't comfortable with the idea that God has predestined kings and nations and wars and planets and oceans and tsunamis and all of that stuff. But keep your hands off my heart. Keep your hand away from my salvation. And so more often than not, whenever we hear the word predestination, we immediately talk about this most intimate and personal of, issue, of issues. We talk about the eternal destinies of men. And so yes, included within that scope and scale of God predestining literally everything that has happened, God has also predetermined, eternally determined, 
the eternal destination of all men. And what Paul is saying here is that God has predestined us, his specific predestination, the determination that he has made for us, for the saints, is that we would be his. He has predestined us for adoption to himself as sons. And as part of that predestined plan, as part of what God is doing, he doesn't just have a destination in mind, he has a people in mind to arrive at that destination. He has chosen us in Christ Jesus. That God's plan doesn't just include the end of the line. You remember I've talked about the analogy of the bus before. We had a bus that left this morning, and it took some people, they're heading up to Utah in order to go on a, on a short-term mission trip to encourage some of our missionaries there. We had a bus that left here this morning at 6 or 6.30, and they headed to the airport. Did they just park the bus out front, and whoever randomly happened to jump on, hey, Mr. Hobo, I guess you're going to Utah. Let's roll. No, people had been chosen for that. They had been planning this event. They had been prepared for what was going to happen, and then they were allowed on the bus, and they went to the destination. This is how it is with God. God says, I haven't just chosen the destination. I haven't just chosen it at random. I have chosen you to reach this appointed end. And because the appointed end is standing before me as sons, you must be holy and blameless and in love. You following me? Therefore, because I have predetermined that you will land here, I have chosen you to be holy and blameless and pure before me as sons and daughters. And so we see how these two ideas fit together, how election and predestination, how they work together. God's choosing as part of his eternal decree for us. Therefore, we might think of election as a positive aspect of God's predestination. That while God has predestined, while God has a predestined plan for all of creation, that the whole universe will resound to his glory. Everything that is, everything that will ever be, everything that ever happens, both good and evil, it is all predestined to magnify the name of God. God has never created anything without a reason or without a purpose. God never does anything with capriciousness. There's never been one extra part. There's never been one wasted moment. Every single thing that comes into existence, every single thing that happens, it is predestined to land at the appointed end that it will resound to the praise of God's glory. But it is only the saints it is only those whom he has chosen in Christ Jesus who will stand before him holy and blameless in love. It is only we who have been predestined within this larger plan of predestination that we have been chosen to stand before him as adopted sons in Christ Jesus. You're still with me? Not Andrew. Andrew's with me. We will stand before him as sons. Now we will talk, God willing, during our next gathering about why he uses the word sons and not sons and daughters. Some hipster modern versions of the bible they'll do sons and daughters but there is there is weight to the idea of adopting a son with regards to paul's context in his writing but the reality is that he's called us to be sons of god and i pray that you feel the magnitude of this I pray that you don't pull away that you don't gloss past it i pray that you don't feel that you've exhausted the end of the glory that's found here the wonder that comes with the reality that you have been called you have been adopted to be a son of god you're chosen you are a rebel, you are a sinner, you are a blasphemer. You are a liar, you are an adulterer, you are a murderer. There's absolutely nothing in you to commend you to God. You are a hard-hearted hater of God, and yet you have been chosen by him, predestined for adoption as sons. Marked out from before the foundation of the world that you would be welcomed into the family of God. There's nothing higher than this. You understand this, right? This is the end of it all, that we would stand before God as sons. Nothing compares to this. You are a son of God. It does not matter what you've previously been known, uh, known as in this world. It doesn't matter what else you're going to do going forward in this world. It doesn't matter what you've accomplished. It doesn't matter in what way you've failed. It doesn't matter what your lineage is or your bloodline or your family or your heritage or your nationality. The most important thing that can be said about you is that you have been adopted, that you are a child of God. That as you are born into this world in Adam, you are by nature a child of wrath, a son of disobedience, but that now you're a child of God. Now, you understand that God didn't need any children. He already had a son eternally. From eternity past, he had a son who was perfect and holy, the same nature and essence and substance, equal to the Father in power and glory and wisdom and beauty and might. The Father already had a son. He didn't need a bunch of messed up sons. He didn't need to welcome us into his family. And yet, in love, to the praise of his glorious grace, he chose to adopt you. And he would so unite you to his son that you would be so clothed in the righteousness of his son that he would then be able to shower you with the blessings that should only belong to his eternal and truly infinitely holy son. 
He did everything necessary, not only in calling you out, not only in choosing you, but in clothing you and making you holy and right and true so he could spend eternity not resenting you, but loving you. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon said. God found a rebellious child, a filthy, a frightful, an ugly child. I think Hannah and Justin had their baby last night, right? Beautiful child. How would it feel for someone to walk in and say, what a rebellious child. What a filthy and frightful and ugly child you have. He took it to his bosom, this is God, and he said, black though thou art, thou art comely in my eyes through my son, Jesus. Unworthy though thou art, yet I cover thee with his robe, and in thy brother's garments I accept thee. And then he took us as holy, as unholy and unclean as we were. He took us to be his, his children, his forever. I pray that you feel the weight of this. Pray that you not got tired. I know that I stand up here and I try to, I'm, I'm, I'm grasping for words. I'm, I'm trying to just show you the magnitude and the majesty and the weight and the glory of all. I pray that you don't think I'm up here just trying to be poetic for poetic sake. I'm trying to show you something that we can't fully comprehend in this lifetime. You are a child of God. You were ugly. You were an ugly child. You were filthy. You were ragtag. You were rebellious. You were fit for hell. And now you're a child of God. And the only reason you stand here as a child of God is because he chose to love you. In Christ Jesus, he decided, I will love this one. I beg you to feel the weight of this. And recognize that what this means is that the Father delights in doing you good. 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. As we are adopted through Christ Jesus, we don't have a harsh and demanding and begrudging father. You understand this? We're not treated as some type of unwanted stepchildren. The son isn't standing next to the father trying to force him to love us today. He loves you. He already loved you. He chose you in love. He adopted you in love. He cleansed you in love. He welcomes you into his family in love. He delights in loving you. He loves you as precious children. More than you could possibly ever love your children. More than you could ever possibly imagine. He loves you. And think about this one who has loved you. Think about the majesty of this love. Listen, some hobo on the street, you're walking by and he says, I love you. Maybe it warms your heart a little, but it doesn't mean a whole lot. But when the king of the universe, the God of all that is, the one who has all the gold and all the silver and all the cattle on a thousand hills, the glorious God of the universe, he looks to you and he says, I love you. I don't love you as a stranger. I don't love you as a slave. I don't love you as a servant. I love you as a child. I will robe you in glory. I will fit you for heaven. I will prepare you for my presence. Again, God willing, next time we'll look at Romans 8, 29, where we see that we're being conformed in the image of his son in order that he that is his son, might be the firstborn among many brothers. That you're not only a child of God, but that you're an adopted brother of Christ Jesus. It wasn't that Jesus was a lonely, only child. The reality is that we came at his expense. All of this purchased at his expense. You receive this glorious inheritance. That's the end of it. That's why we says sons, because the end of this thing is a glorious inheritance, an inheritance that should only belong to the son by nature. It should only belong to the one who truly looks like the Father. It should only be belong to the one who has been with the Father from all eternity. And yet we are joint heirs. It is all ours, and it came to us. It didn't cost us anything. We didn't do anything to earn it. We didn't do anything to purchase it. It came to us at great cost, the cost of Christ Jesus, that God gave his only begotten Son that you might become sons, that Christ Jesus willingly and joyfully laid down his life that you might become his adopted brother to redeem you from slavery, to wash you clean, to welcome you into his family. So the question that sits before us this morning is, if he has done this, if the God of the universe did not spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us all, will he not also with him, with him graciously give us all things? What do you think God is going to withhold from you? What do you think God is holding back from you? What good thing do you think you could possibly bring before God that he say, that is for your good and it is for my glory, but no, I reserve them for your brother. I reserve them for the greater one. I reserve them from Christ Jesus. I will not give this thing to you. The answer is nothing. The answer is nothing. There is no good thing that he will withhold from you. You are a precious and beloved child. 
think I'm going to stop there. I don't want to rush down another rabbit trail and then have to, have to rush, and I certainly don't want to do anything that draws your hearts away from this because the reality is that there's no higher expression of God's love than this, that he not only won you, he not only brought you into his family, but that he purchased you at an infinite price, that he chose you, that he bought you, that he has welcomed you into his family and that there you will be forever. Those of you that have gone through the foster process and the adoption process, I've heard from some of you how oftentimes one of the biggest hurdles is helping the, helping the children feel settled and recognize this is your home now. You're safe here. You're wanted here. There's nothing you're going to do that's going to infuriate me. There's nothing you're going to do that's going to cause me to cast you out. That, that's a big hurdle. And I feel as though sometimes God the Father has to do that same thing with us. That we constantly live as though there's some line that we're going to cross and then he's going to kick us out. Are we constantly trying to sweep up the living room or trying to organize the pantry or trying to do something that can win his favor? If I do enough of this, if I can store up enough goodwill, then he'll never cast me out. If I can do enough good things, if I can really please him with all my life, then maybe he's going to do good for me. And he's saying, stop, stop. It's all been done. I loved you, I wanted you, I bought you, and you are mine. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you, Father, that um, you don't treat us as we deserve. Not only do you not treat us as enemies, not only do you not treat us as rebels, not only have you not cast us out of your blessed presence for eternity, but that you welcome us to you. And even in that, Father, that you did not welcome us as slaves. We, every one of us, feel an awful lot like the uh, prodigal son Surely my father would give me just a morsel of something. Surely he allowed me to work for him as a hired hand. And yet, Father, you've not done this. You've welcomed us with open arms. You've showered your love and your blessings and your goodness upon us. So we praise you for that. I pray, Father, I desperately pray for those saints that are here in this room that don't yet recognize that, that haven't yet let go, that haven't yet accepted the fact that in Christ Jesus they are eternally yours. I pray, Father God, that you would stir in their spirit and allow them to let go. God, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.